0: And turn to Psalm 126, we continue in our series Summer Playlist through the Psalms of Ascent. And because we are grateful that God has spoken when we read this text, at the end of the reading of the text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we proclaim together out loud, thanks be to God. Psalm 126, the word of God for the people of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning,
1: Westside. Good morning. Give me just a second. I'm going to start this timer on my phone because if I'm not constrained, then you'll be here forever and you won't ever have the chance to come back because you won't ever leave. It's like Hotel California up in this joint. All right, so we're continuing our series, Summer Playlist. For those of you who may not know, um, we have actually been looking at what are called the Psalms of Ascent in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, and it's specifically Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. And these are essentially like the playlists that the people of Israel would would not just listen to and consume, but would sing aloud as they journeyed from their various locations and their tribes To Jerusalem for the various feasts and festivals and so they would sing these on the journey and so we've taken a look at this map week after week and and what the people of Israel would do is they would come from their their various tribes and locations and they would follow down the Jordan River and or the River Jordan however you want to say it and then they would come down all the way to the lowest geographical point on the planet which is the Dead Sea and then they would turn west and they would look up towards Jerusalem which is surrounded by mountains and set up there on those hills. And they would travel there, they would ascend to Jerusalem, and that's why they would sing these Psalms of Ascent. So they would sing these songs on the journey. And we're about halfway through now, a little bit under halfway, and we're at Psalm 126, and we've kind of looked at a beautiful applications of, of what these Psalms have for our everyday lives here and now. Because we've been, we've been saying over and over again that the physical journey of the Psalms of Ascent are a picture of our spiritual journey with Jesus Christ here in 2019. And so we've seen everything from repentance to what God's help is like to how we are secure in our faith and that moves us to maturity in our faith, how we can't do this thing alone and how there aren't any shortcuts for us when it comes to journeying this life with Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna do the same thing that we've done for the last six weeks. We're gonna look at the text And we're going to break it down and take a look at what implications, what the physical journey looks like for the people of Israel in this psalm and how that is a picture of our spiritual journey with Jesus. And so we'll start with this. Uh, in January of this year, January 1st, a TV show was released on Netflix. It has like a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. For those of you who know or care, that's really high for a TV show. And it's been critiqued and reviewed by newspapers, or I don't, newspapers aren't a thing, by, by internet news and columns and articles that you can find online, positive and negative, and it's actually probably literally tangibly affected the way that you live in your own home and life. The TV show is called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Raise your hand if, yeah, I see some of you looking at it. like, I
0: watch that show.
1: I've, I haven't seen an episode of it yet, but I've read up the premise, and, and it's really interesting. Like, Marie goes into your house, which number one is crazy for me, like if, for a complete stranger to come in, and number two, she tells you what to do with your stuff, which is insane. But she basically says you need to go from this room, from your laundry room, to your pantry, to your bedrooms, and your closet, and your kitchen, take everything that you own out of the drawers, off the shelves, and put it in a pile in the middle of the room and go through every piece and pick it up and ask yourself if you need it. Do I really need this? Is this something that I want around the house? And it was so impactful that by January 7th, one, like six days after this TV show was released, Washington, D.C.'s Goodwill, they, they ran their numbers on their donation records and they were up by 66%. Seven days of this show being out, six days. And then the following month, uh, in the middle of February, so the TV show had only been like a month and a half old, the national record for goodwill for donations was up by 22% and rising. That's national. That's not just D.C. And it's all from people going to this TV show and looking at Marie Kondo saying, hey, grab your stuff, pick up an item, hold it close to you, and ask yourself this question. Does it spark joy? And I don't know if you've ever gone to your kitchen and like held your toaster and said, like, does this spark joy? Some of you are just like, yes, it makes me toast. I love this thing. But it's interesting that how, how high of a, of a return this, this TV show basically had in terms of ratings and views and all of that because people, I, don't, I can guarantee you, no one likes cleaning their house. Nobody likes gathering everything and making a massive mess to try and make it cleaner. They're going because she's, she's tapping on something that we're all after. She's tapping on something that we are all running after constantly. It's joy. Joy. What sparks joy in our lives? What, how, how do we produce joy? Can we produce it ourselves? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in this psalm, is that we see this theme of joy. But what is joy? What is, what is it to live a joy-filled life? And I'm not talking about happiness Happiness are things that that are completely controlled by by external situations or material things around you. Like, hey, I got this new truck, I'm super happy. Instagram photo, hey everybody, look at my new truck. Or hey, I got that promotion, super great, external circumstance causes me to have a rush of sensation and emotion and happiness. That's not what I'm talking about, these fleeting quick moments of happiness. So we can't look outside of ourselves, right, for, for external circumstances and material things to provide us with joy, that's just happiness. Well, can we maybe take a look at what some scholars have said about what joy actually is? This is what somebody from Psychology Today has to say about what joy is. Now, remember, this is someone from Psychology Today. This is not Jesus. Joy comes when you make peace with who you are, where you are, and why you are. When you need nothing else, then you have settled into the abiding joy that is not rocked by relationships. It's not rocked by anything. Listen. I have a great respect for whoever wrote that because they are a psychologist and I could never do that. It would be extremely stressful and extremely impractical. But they're, they're tapping at something that makes sense. But what they're basically saying is joy comes from inside of you. Joy is that spark that Oprah Winfrey would say that, that is deep down inside of you that you can produce for yourself. But as believers and, and adherers to God, God's word, we do not believe that. That Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is desperately wicked who can understand it? So I don't know why you would want to pull joy from something like that, or at least attempt to. And even in the book of Genesis, God looked down on the earth, and it says before the flood that he saw everybody doing, every, everybody thinking and doing and sinning constantly, nonstop, all the time. That humanity itself is broken. And so we can't pull this joy from ourselves, and we obviously can't get joy from the things around us. And so what we're going to look at this morning from the premise, we're going to look at everything in this text from the premise of what we believe, which is this, the source of joy is found in Jesus. We believe as believers in 2019 that the source of joy is found in Jesus. If you were here in the beginning of the year in January, we went through a series called Abide. And it was kind of a word for us as, as believers and as a body of West, at Westside here in Poplar Bluff in 2019 that we would abide in Jesus. And I hope that journey is going well for you. And if you remember, Jesus has repeated statements of abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's this idea of not being separated from Jesus, but once we're in him, that we are with him. And that affects everything. So much so that at the end of that passage in John chapter 15... Jesus says, I tell you these things so that your joy may be full. I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So we look to Jesus for the source of our joy. But what does a joy-filled life look like? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to unpack what a joy-filled life looks like. We're going to see that a joy-filled life sees what God has done. A joy-filled life shares its story. And a joy-filled life, uh, I'm sorry, stays faithful on the journey. Excuse me. So let's get right into that first one. A joy-filled life sees what God has done. See what God has done. Look down at your Bibles in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 126. What's the first word? When. When. Let's try that again and see if you guys are looking down at your Bible. But What's the first word? When. When. All right. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. I want you to underline that line, restored the fortunes. When the Lord restored the fortunes. And here's what I don't want you to think about when you read that line in the future or later in this service. I don't want you to think about an Israelite sitting at a slot machine, pulling on it and finally bar, bar, bar and all the money comes out the bottom. Yeah, my fortunes are restored. That's not what we're talking about here and I don't believe that's what the the psalmist is getting at. How many of you ladies are in in a James pod doing your James study with the book? You guys have been using Blue Letter Bible to get in there and kind of do some word studies? You can do it too. Blue Letter Bible is what I use to kind of dig up what this actually translates to. Restored the fortunes actually translates to brought back the captives. Brought back the captives. Write that in the margins of your Bible because that opens up a huge door for us and kind of the pathway of which we will take when looking and picking this text apart. The Lord brought back the captives of Zion. We were like those who dream. That sounds familiar, right? It's a theme that we've constantly been hearing and being reminded of all through this journey in the Psalms of Ascent. They're remembering the Exodus. He brought us back from exile when he brought us out. They're remembering the Exodus. If you don't remember the story... Um, the story is the people, uh, the people of Israel had been slaves to Egypt for like 400 years and Pharaoh was all mad and he was like hey I want you guys to make me some bricks and they're like cool give us straw and he's like hey here's some straw and then Moses comes along and starts to rustle some feathers and then Pharaoh's like hey get your own straw and the people of Israel are like Moses you're lame why did this happen this is all your fault and we don't have enough time to, and materials to make all of this stuff and then Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's like hey you need to let my people go Guess what God says let his people go and Pharaoh's like eh that's not a good idea and then all the plagues come and then Pharaoh by the end of these plagues comes forward and says hey you just need to get your people and take them out of here and so Moses leads all of the people of Israel out of Egypt and outside of the city walls and Pharaoh's like that's a bad idea we need all of our slaves and so they take their armies and they run after them and God opens the Red Sea and they run through it and then the armies of Egypt are crushed when the Red Sea when the Dead Sea comes back on top of them and right after the Lord faithfully delivers them from 400 years of slavery Moses turns to his people after the waters are closed and he says this in Exodus chapter 13. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you from this place. The people of Israel are singing of what God had done. They are singing when the Lord brought back the captives and they are being called to remember, so they're seeing what God has done. He delivered them out of slavery and delivered them out of Egypt. What has God done for you? Do you remember? Can you see what God has done in your life? I mean, let's just go practical with it. Like a lot of you have vehicles. You drove yourself to church. God is the provider of that and everything else that you have and own. A lot of you have uh, homes that you have, shelter, you have a shelter and a, and a means of, of income or a job so you, can, so you can feed and clothe your family and shelter them as well. But I'm not just talking about material things, and I don't believe that is what the psalmist is getting at here, that we should see what God has done for us in terms of like what we got out of it. That, yeah, we, we're free from slavery, and that's, and, and that's what we get. We get to you know, kind of do our own thing now. They're remembering something greater. Look at that very next line, that very next verse. It says, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. And again, like earlier, I don't believe that the psalmist is talking about an Israelite who comes home from church on a Sunday, has a big meal, takes a nap, and has a dream about the Blues winning the Stanley Cup again this year. He's talking about hope. The psalmist is referring to hope. When we look back and see what God has done, and he delivered us from Egypt, we were like those who had hope. We put our hope in someone who heard us and was faithful to deliver and answer our prayers and our hopes. Where do we put our hope? Where do you put your hope? I'm going to unpack four quick things of where I believe that we commonly put hope. Most of them are just kind of pulled from my life, but if you're offended, that's great too. So let's go with the very first thing. Where is my hope? How about money? Money? Is your hope in money? That if, you could, if we could just sell the house and then once we sell the house, we get the equity and then we can get the equity and then we can pay off these bills and once the bills are paid, we can deal with the insurance and maybe once all that's taken care of, we can do the fence and when the fence is taken care of, we can probably upgrade in vehicle and keep our kids safe and, and we need to have a certain amount in retirement and constantly laboring and laboring and laboring to get that number that's comfortable. Are you putting your hope or your trust or your love in money? 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says, the love of money is the root of all evil. So if that's where we are, may God have mercy on our souls. Number two, is my hope in my career? Is my hope in my career? Some of you are small business owners. Some of you are construction workers. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. Some of you are, I don't know, name your position. I needed a third one, but I couldn't come up with it. So here we are. Are you spending your entire life laboring long, long hours, missing meals with your family, missing the kids' games? Guys, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who are on their deathbed saying, I wish I just spent more time with my family, but I spent it all on my career. Are you laboring and toiling, a word that we've heard in the past in Ecclesiastes, for something that will not bring you joy? That will actually only bring you toil. That will only bring you, as Solomon put it, vanity. We just went through Ecclesiastes, and I've mentioned a little bit of it here, but this is what Solomon had to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22, in regards to slaving your life away with work. He says, "...what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? All of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest." This also is vanity. Are you putting your hope in your career? How about this one? Are you putting hope in relationships? Are you putting your hope in relationships? This one was really interesting for, for my generation because a lot of us were like, well, we need to wait and establish a career and, and have a good amount of money uh, you know, in the bank account, and then we, can, then we can join lives with someone else and get married. But then all of our friends around us started to get married early, and so we started getting married anyways, and then all of our friends started having kids, and we started having kids to keep up with them. And then, and then we did everything that we could to stay friends with the friends that we were. Or if you're like any generation, you're constantly looking for that, that perfect, special somebody to spend the rest of your life with. And that is what your entire identity and your hope is wrapped up in. That once I finally marry this person, or once this person finally gets their act together, or once, what, once something finally delivers itself in the terms of our relationship and we cross this milestone, then we will have joy. Then we will have joy in our family. Are you putting your hope in that? Eugene Peterson has an interesting thing to say from his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, in regards to relationships. He says, a common but futile strategy for achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt, get rid of pain by numbing the nerve endings, get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks in relationships, or get rid of disappointment entirely by depersonalizing them, and then try to lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of, like, vacations and toys and stuff. Are we putting our hope in relationships? Because ultimately, we see that that does not yield joy. That does not yield joy. And lastly, where is my hope? Is it in myself? Is my hope in myself? That if everyone around me would just understand that this is how I am, and they would deal with the way I talk or the way that I think, and I never challenge myself, or I never step out and try and join a community group, or I never try and and get involved with people and create new relationships, everybody just needs to understand that this is how I am and this is me. Is that you? Because if, if, if that's you, you're putting your hope in yourself, that the only hope that you have in your life is what you can produce on your own. St. Augustine said that pride is the mother of all sin. She's pregnant with all the rest. And if you're walking down that path, you'll walk down a lot of others. I don't wear a cape, man. I'm, I'm speaking from experience. Just ask my wife. I'm the most prideful person in this room. <laughs> So if our hope is in money, our career, relationships, or ourselves, we're obviously not doing well. We obviously have put our hope in something that is not going to yield joy, is not even going to yield something good for us. But where did the people of Israel have their hope? They had their hope in a God who hears them. They had their hope in a God who opens his ears and responds and delivers them. Look what it says here in Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In the same way that God was faithful to those who put their hope in him when they were slaves for 400 years, God is faithful when you put your hope in Him. Why does the location of our hope matter? Because the location of your hope determines the outcome of your joy. The location of your hope determines the outcome of your joy. If your hope is in yourself, or in your money, or in your career, or in your finances, any of these things, they will not produce joy. They may produce happiness for some time, but it will not be lasting joy. We believe that the source of joy is found in Jesus. And so if we put our hope and our faith in Christ, that is where our joy will come from. That is where our joy will draw from. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. So we see that the joy-filled life, we put our hope, in Jesus because the location of our hope determines the outcome of our joy. And we see where our hope comes from because we see what God has done. But the joy-filled life also shares its story. You need to share your story. Share your story. Look down at your Bible in verses 2, the second half of verse 2 through 3. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. It says that the nations, the surrounding nations knew of what took place with the nation of Israel and how God delivered them out of Egypt. How did they know? How did they know? Because Israel talked about it all the time. They had feasts and festivals that were all surrounding, remembering what God had done for them, all of their songs, tons of the Psalms, all the songs in the Psalms of Ascent reference to it, and a lot of the Psalms throughout the entire book of Psalms reference it. A, a massive part of the Old Testament is constantly looking back and, being, and remembering what God had done for them, and so they were talking about it all the time. Everyone around them knew what happened and how the Lord had done great things for them. This is a picture of our oldest daughter, Jessie Ray. Every morning, I go into the room, and I get Jessie up. I change her diaper, I get her some milk, and we sit down, and we read. And she likes to read. And right now, lately, it's one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And, and so we do that, and then we do breakfast, and I go to work. And then when I come home from work, she's like waiting for me at the laundry room, like saying, Daddy, read. And she holds up the book, and then I, go, I come inside, we sit down, and we read. Jesse knows this story really well because we've read it multiple times. And when we're done reading 75 pages of one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, he says again. And then we read it again and again and again. And she can't even read, but she recites it because she's hearing it, because she knows it. Kayla and I know this really, really, really well. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, black fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish. This one has a little star. This one has a little car. Say what a lot of fish there are. why, Why do I know that? Why do I know the lyrics? Why do I know the words to this book? Because it's constantly on repeat in our house. I'm constantly sharing this story with my daughter. And therefore, all of us, the surrounding nations around Jesse, if you will, all know the story of one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. The people of Israel were no different. Are we different? Do we share our story? Did you know you have a story to tell? If you believe in the name of Jesus Christ and He has resurrected you from the dead, you have a story to tell, man. You have a story. We need to share our story. It affects those around us. Verse 2 says that the surrounding nations said the Lord has done great things for them. People know. People are listening and watching your lives. So what is my story? If you need a refresher, what is my story? Well, first it's this. It's what God did for you. It's what God did for you or for me. You can put you or me in that second blank. That's totally up to you. What God did for me. Look down at your Bible in verse 2. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. I want you to circle that word for in both of those verses. What's the for there for? What is the for there for? It's there because it implies that God did something for them that they could not do themselves. The Lord has done great things for them. And then Israel acknowledging, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. What did He do for you that you could not do yourself? Colossians chapter 2 refreshes our memory in verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is what he has done for you that you could not do yourself. Then in, in, in Ephesians, it says that he reached down into the, depth and the, death, the depths of death and darkness, even when you were dead in your sins and made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is something that you can't earn. You can't do for yourself. It's a gift from an unobligated giver. So, so that's your story. What Jesus has done for you. Do you remember when the Lord saved you? If you see what God has done, See how He has delivered you from death. Share your story. Share your story. And What is your story? It's what God did for you. But it's not just that. It's also how that changed you. It's also how that changed you. Look down at those verses again. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. We are glad the nations of Israel understood. The people of Israel, when they sang this, I I can, can hear them in my head singing this in a language I can't understand, but with so much joy, with so much emphasis, singing, this is what God has done for us. He brought back the exiles, and now everybody around us knows. And now we are glad about that, because we are constantly being reminded. It's literally literally birthing joy inside of us because of the Holy Spirit alive inside of us. That joy is now coming from Jesus alive in me. Not from myself, but from Him. So it's not just what God did for you, but it's how that changed you. How has it changed you? Are you glad? I mean, we just, we just talked about it in Psalm 123 a couple of weeks ago. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad? Not just to be here, but to be. To be saved. To see what God has done for you. Are you sharing that? Are you sharing your story? Is it changing you? Is it affecting you? If you're not sharing your story, you should be. If you're not sharing your story, you should be. There's a a story in the book of Joshua um, where Joshua takes the Israelites and uh, he's about to go and sing and dance the walls of Jericho down to death. And on their way there, they, they have to cross the Jordan. And the river Jordan runs dry and they cross and then... Joshua says, hey, all the leaders of Israel, I need you to take some stones for each of your tribe and set it here, set up a a column, an Ebenezer. And someone asks why, and he says this, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. If you're not sharing your story, you should be, because these things last for generations. Some of you have family members who don't know Jesus, and you have been a Christian for decades. Are you sharing your story? Some of you are raising children and they don't know you love Jesus. Have you sat down with your kids and told them how the Lord saved you? Are you sharing your story with them? So we see that the joy-filled life causes us to see what God has done. That The location of our hope determines the outcome of our joy. So our joy is found in Jesus because we put our hope in Him. We see that we share our story Because we're so full of joy, it just comes out of us. And and we have to share. And the nations around us and the people around us at work or our friends or our family, and they all know because of the way that we live and because we won't stop talking about it. But we also see the last thing that a joy-filled life does. It's that we stay faithful on the journey. We stay faithful on the journey. Look down at your Bible at verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves or his bundles with him. These verses, when I read them and 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 did a little research and, and some commentaries on them. I saw that, that a lot of it was kind of leaning more towards like an evangelical perspective of like, hey, this is what you sow and this is what you reap when you share your testimony. And, and, and we've seen that in the second point in those second and third verses. And so I want to look at this from a little bit different of, a, of an angle. When you read the text, you see this, this, this pattern. You see it broken up into three parts that we look back and we see what God has done. You see that when the Lord restored our fortunes or brought back the captives we were like those who dream. And then you see the second portion, which is kind of sharing your story. The nations around us all know, hey, the Lord's done great things for him, and he has, and we're glad about it. And then we move to farming. Like, how does that transition make sense? What is the psalmist trying to tell us? I believe that the psalmist is trying to tell us that to stay faithful on the journey, we, that affects the way that we live day to day. It affects the way that we go to our jobs and the way that we handle ourselves, the way that we handle our, our workplace relationships or, or our jobs themselves or our money or the way that we treat our family members, the investments that we make in relationships and all of these things. So what, what, is, it to, what, what is it to stay faithful on the journey If we see that the people of Israel are singing, hey, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What does it look like to, to stay faithful on the journey with Christ? Well, firstly, I believe that we need to work well. We need to work well. Look at verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears. and verse 6, He who goes out weeping. He who goes out weeping. Sometimes, even when we, when we look back and we see what God has done and we, and we share our story, we're kind of like here and now in, in the present day and age. Like, I'm still waking up in the morning, still changing babies' diapers, I'm still feeding babies to keep them alive, and I'm still going to work and then coming home, and I'm still changing babies' diapers and feeding babies to keep them alive and putting them to, taking a bath and going to bed. Or I'm still going to the same office. every. Some of you have been in the same career for the last 30 years. Praise God for that. That's faithfulness. One of our founding members, Margaret Cross, her husband, Ted, he was a mailman for the United States Postal, Postal Service for like 30 years. And sometimes going to the same place day after day after day even though God has done great things for us we are kind of mundane. Things in our life seem mundane or dry or dead. Like what's the purpose? I come here every day and I stare at this screen. What's the purpose? I come here every day and I I swing this hammer. Over and over again. This is a picture of the Negev Desert. In verse 4 it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And this is a region that's around Jerusalem. It's completely dry, it's desert, nothing really grows there apart from one time of, of a few times in the year when, when the rains come. When the rains come and, and streams run through the valley, like streams in the Negev, it looks like this. It bursts to life. It comes to life. Why would they reference this? Because journeying well. To stay faithful on this journey requires you to continue on the path even when things seem mundane, when, theme, when things seem dry and dead in your life. But what's it like when those streams come through? How do I work well and how do I see my desert turn into this? Turn into this life giving abundance, the, the shrubs and the poppy flowers and all of these things. Are, are you seeing what God has done? Can you see what he's done for you, that he raised you from the dead and made you alive together with Christ? Can you see that? Can you see that you could not do that for yourself, that he did it for you? And now, when you share that story because your heart is so overflowing with joy that you can't help but tell your friends, your family members, your kids, the people at your workplace about what the Lord has done for you and how you are glad. I guarantee you if you do those first two things, they go in this order for a reason, that they will make you come home from work with a different attitude. When you pull into that driveway in the afternoon, you will look at that front door of your house and walk in with joy, and walk in with joy knowing what the Lord has done for you, knowing what the Lord has done for your family. So how do we stay faithful on the journey? We work well, but also we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. The second line of verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Bringing his sheaves with him, his bundles. Listen, when we remember what God has done and we share... And going to work changes the way oh, I'm sorry, it changes the way that we go to work and the way that we, the way that we engage with our workplace and, and what we do on a day-to-day basis. We give God glory staying faithful on the journey. We worship Jesus because that is what He has called us to do, even when things are difficult, even when things are hard. First Peter, chapter one, verses eight through nine, say this: "Though you have not seen Him." You love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. So where does this come from? If we believe that the source of joy is found in Jesus, and we believe that that calls us to see what God has done, to share our story, and to stay faithful on the journey... We need to understand that every day, that daily life can be full of joy. Daily life can be full of joy. But that joy doesn't come from you. That joy comes from Jesus. The source of joy is found in Jesus. The band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response. And, and as they do, I want, to, I want to ask you some questions for the road. I want to ask you a few questions that kind of recap what, we, what we've talked about in these three points. The, in John chapter 15, sorry, in John chapter 16, Jesus says this. He says, So also you now have sorrow, but I will again see you, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. He was talking to the disciples before he was going to be delivered to Pilate and crucified. That's true for me and you today. That if we stay faithful on the journey, even when we are walking through difficult times, what may seem like a desert, that our joy can be full because our joy is found in Jesus. Stand to your feet this morning. Questions for the road. Number one Where is my hope? Where is my hope? Is it in money? Is it in your career? Is it in a relationship? Is it in yourself? Or is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Where is your hope? Secondly, who can I share my story with? For some of you, the name name is right there on your mind. Share your story with that person. If you're not sharing your story, you should be. Some of you don't know who to share it with. Pick somebody. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your boss. Share your story. Lastly, how will I live differently day to day? Does the news that you hear of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel and how you were raised from the dead, does that change the way you live? Does it change the way you look at life? Change the way you come home from work. We have to understand that the true source of joy is only found in Jesus, nowhere else. Would you pray with us this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, the living hope. Thank you for your Word as we chase after you through the pages of scripture we constantly see reminder after reminder after reminder of what you have done for us and that fills us with joy and we share help us to share as we come to the table this morning God open our eyes may we clearly see what Jesus has done for us and that in the body And in the blood of Jesus Christ, we see the source of our joy. Remind us of that as we approach the table this morning. And help us with all of these things. We ask it all in the mighty and living name of our hope, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Respond in song and please come forward as you feel led.